You already know that Illegal Pete's makes delicious, mission-style Mexican food. But did you know that Illegal Pete's uses its marketing funds to support Colorado creative talent that we love? We support the Denver Diatribe Podcast, the Grolix Comedy Showcase, Rocky Mountain Roller Girls, the Yellow Designs BMX Stunt Team, Apex Movement Parkour Team, the Underground Music Showcase, and more. We even have our own record label, The Greater Than Collective, with albums by The Epilogues, Snake Rattle Rattlesnake, Esme Patterson, Ian Cook, and comedian Ben Roy, and a starving artist program that feeds out-of-town bands traveling in Colorado for free. Illegal Pete's. We're more than just a restaurant. So, let us put our food... And music... And comedy... And sports... Inside you. Please. please. Denver, Denver, I'm from Denver, 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 I'm from Denver, 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 Welcome to the Denver Diatribe, a podcast on news and culture from Denver, Colorado, the first major city north of Breaking Bad. I'm Vanessa Martinez, and in this episode of The Diatribe, I talk with Santiago Guerra, a professor of Southwest Studies at Colorado College, about drugs, drones, popular TV series like Breaking Bad, and other topics inspired by life along the U.S.-Mexico border. First, a quick announcement about The Diatribe's abbreviated summer schedule. We've taken a reprieve from weekly production and are releasing just two podcasts a month until the start of fall, when we'll return to our usual weekly programming. But that doesn't mean you can't continue to love and hate on us in the meantime. You can still hit us up on Facebook or Twitter at Denver Diatribe, leave a message at 720-282-YELL, or drop a comment at denverdiatribe.com. As always, we've got mad love for our generous sponsor, Illegal Pete's, which has a shiny new outpost on South Broadway with a killer covered patio and a bocce court. And that makes six locations on the front range for Illegal Pete's, all serving high-quality meats from... Neiman Ranch, locally sourced tortillas from Colorado Tortilla Company, and lots of options for all diets, including low-carb, vegetarian, and gluten-free. Illegal Pete's also has one of my favorite happy hours, which runs from 3 to 8 p.m. every day and offers course products for $2.50, $3.50 select craft beers, $3 wells, $4 margs, and free chips and salsa. To keep up with all the local awesomeness and events Illegal Pete's supports, visit IllegalPete's.com. One thing that is no longer illegal in Colorado, as you know, is marijuana. And although you may think you've considered every perspective there is about legalization at this point, count on some surprises from our guest this week. As a professor of popular Colorado college courses on the drug war, Santiago Guerra draws from his personal connections and experiences growing up on the border in South Texas to approach his anthropological research into the drug trade, which makes his work pretty unique. I think most border analysts and drug analysts right now come uh, at studying the border and studying drugs from like this, uh, how many people are coming across, how, we, how can we control this issue, whether it's immigration or whether it's drugs. And you lose a lot of like the human element in that, right? When you're, when you're just throwing out stats and talking about numbers and, you know, how do we fix the problem, right? Uh, it leaves out a lot of the historical sort of processes that have shaped this region. Uh, and that have shaped these social problems. And so I've often come at it from thinking about, well, we have these you know, things taking place, right? Immigration, human smuggling, drug trafficking. How does that shape the lives of people living in the region? And how are these people, especially in terms of the drug war, which is what I focus on more, 
how are the people living in this region affected in a way that's much different than consumers at the other end of the market, uh, which was something that I had to come to recognize after moving away, right? When I was growing up, all I ever saw was the trafficking side of things, right? I never knew where these substances were going, right? I, could, I would see, you know, pounds of marijuana, tons of marijuana, you know, many kilos of cocaine, and never had any real idea of what these things were doing just coming through here. And so for me, it's really about connecting what these communities, these border communities are experiencing more from a social justice perspective, right? So we have all these drug consumers in the U.S. that have contributed historically to the shaping of the border through the impetus for having the trafficking of these illicit substances. It was very, very interesting to go back historically mm-hmm. and look at where you placed the beginning of the drug trade. Can we go way back and, and yeah. talk about cows? Yeah, so, <laughs> um, you know, so in my analysis, right, and this happens around the world, right? You, anytime you have the imposition of borders around the world, uh, you start to see illicit economies develop, right? And so if we go all the way back to, um, you know, 1836, 1848, uh, especially in the region where I'm from, in South Texas, you see um, that as soon as uh, we start to establish boundaries after uh, the Battle of the Republic of Texas and then after uh, the Mexican-American War, we initially start to see the development of these illicit economies. Uh, and the first um, good that gets smuggled back and forth uh, is cattle, right? Here we have you know, something that at the time is right, the mainstay of the economy, right? Food and um, all the other products that you're able to get from cattle, right? Leather, tallow, all these substances that were needed. But if you're able to manipulate the economy and be able to traffic, you know, cattle back and forth across the border without having to pay tariffs, without even having to pay anything for them, right? If you go into Mexico and steal cows from a Mexican rancher and are protected by the U.S., you just made a profit. And that's how a lot of the, the rich cattle barons in Texas became rich. Now, if you go back historically and people think about people stealing cattle, usually it's they think about Mexicans stealing cattle. Uh, and a lot of that was Mexicans coming back into the U.S. to try to get back cattle that had been stolen from them, right? And so there's this back and forth. Uh, and even from that early period, even though there was you know, smuggling of cattle taking place, rustling taking place back and forth, that it's the Mexicans that we think of as like the bad guys. And this is where I started to, in my analysis, pose that from the inception of the border, we start to criminalize Mexicans around the practice of smuggling and illicit trade. And so, yeah, in the early period, it's cattle. But then later on, as we get into the late 1800s, you have really famous Mexican smugglers that are engaging in smuggling of textiles, engaging in smuggling of things like everyday goods like sugar, um, tobacco, anything you can think of. Leather. Um, Leather, My grandfather was part of that. I think, actually, I learned about my own family, well, maybe a few things about my family Uh from uh, reading your dissertation, one of them being that pretty sure that he was a rum runner. So there were the tequileros. They were the people who actually brought the alcohol across the border. Yeah, and that would have been one of my grandfathers. (laughs) (laughs) So then he handed it off to my grandfather, who ran it into, like, a major urban area. Yeah, Uh, and that's where you start to see from the earliest period, right, that smugglers along the border and Mexican smugglers don't operate in a vacuum, right? They are necessarily engaged in 
illicit commerce with people, not just along the border, but throughout, right, both nations. The distribution chain. Yeah. And so yeah, here in, in the time of Prohibition, you had Mexican smugglers, uh, tequileros, bringing over, you know, these goods that were needed, right, uh, during Prohibition, and then passing them off to the commodity chain as it moves further and further into places like uh, Chicago, uh, places like Denver. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, yeah, you start to see the development of these networks established. And those early networks, I think especially the Prohibition networks, is we still see of today as sort of driving the illicit drug trade, right? Here you have the first real drug trade in the early 1900s with Prohibition, uh, but then after we repeal uh, Prohibition, we start to see quickly the escalation of these other uh, illicit drugs being trafficked into the U.S., and that's, you know, anything from heroin, cocaine, marijuana from that early period. So marijuana is already starting to be smuggled by the 1930s after it's sort of prohibited uh, to be possessed in the U.S. Especially here in Colorado, we uh, take for granted that marijuana is still a major drug that is smuggled, despite it being legalized here. Yeah, (laughs) even right now. So if you talk about, you know, post-Amendment 64, Colorado, right now we don't have, to, to my knowledge, I know in Colorado Springs we don't have any retail stores that sell. So if you're consuming marijuana legally, in quotes, in the state of Colorado, chances are you got to it through some illegal means. And so whether you bought it uh, on the black market, you know, if you're buying, if you're really cheap and you're having to buy Mexican marijuana uh, and that's what you got, I mean, obviously that's already part of an illicit market. But a lot of people right now are actually getting it from people that have medical marijuana cards, mm-hmm. right? And so if you have a medical marijuana card and you decide, hey, why don't I sell to somebody because it's legal, guess what? You just broke the law, mm-hmm. right? And that's something we haven't really been talking about. I talk about it in my classes here with students because a lot of them smoke marijuana, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, and they think it's all cool and, and legal, but when you ask them, well, where did you get it? Like, oh, well, I'm not sure. I think somebody with a red card. I mean, some guy deals it on campus, so I got it from somebody who obviously got it some way. Uh, and chances are whether that kid got it from medical marijuana dispensary or from some other like illicit market in consuming it here in Colorado, these students are engaged in some sort of illicit trade, mm-hmm. right? One of the cases that was made in selling legalization was that we won't have to, we will take it off the black market so we won't have these problems mm-hmm. with uh, trafficking. And there were even comments being made by certain people about, well, this will cut curb cartel activity in mm-hmm. Um, at least in Colorado, because you know we'll be able to buy it legally. And did you ever, when you heard, did you ever hear those? Comments? Yeah, and I, I confronted the people that were part of the Amendment 64 initiative because, in their sort of late term advertising, right before the election, they had this really problematic commercial that talked about like what you're, the very thing that you're talking about, right? That you know taking things off the black market, and the way they frame the debate was like you can get your substances right your, your marijuana from you know law-abiding you know white dispensary owners or retail owners in Colorado or you can and this sort of this is what really bothered me right you had the funneling of money to Mexico saying that and Mexico's sort of in the color brown Colorado green and so it had this uh, really problematic imagery 
Um, they're saying, right, you can have your drugs coming from these terrible criminals in Mexico, right? Or you can have it from us, right? Law-abiding citizens that are just like you, mm-hmm. right? Yes, fine. In Colorado, we might take away, we might very well kill the black market for Mexican marijuana. Now, there's one thing people aren't talking about, and that's the fact that we have a meth problem in Colorado, and a lot of people, to the best of my knowledge, from talking to students and uh, talking to some older folks, there's still a lot of cocaine consumption taking place in Colorado. Absolutely. Ecstasy. Yeah, also. ecstasy. Uh, it's summertime, so I keep thinking of, you go to concerts, you see this everywhere. Um, if you're at Red Rocks, just about every drug is represented. Yeah. That you can think of. Somebody's doing acid, somebody's doing ecstasy, somebody's doing coke, somebody's doing, you know, lots of people are smoking pot. Uh And and (laughs) what becomes problematic is that, like, and I make students do this exercise because you can, you know, when they come to my class on the drug war and they're talking about uh, legalization, all these things, and marijuana seems to be the, the point where they, you know, are able to say, look, we're doing something right. Well, yes, but then how many people on campus are using cocaine and there's a significant there's significant cocaine consumption on college campuses, right? And that's something you can't sort of wipe your hands off of. You can't, like, oh, I don't buy fair trade cocaine. Right? <laughs> um, there, there's no fair trade cocaine market. So if you're consuming cocaine, chances are you're contributing to all of this sort of uh, problem in Latin America. The flip side to that is also, you know, we, we've sort of created these problems in Latin America as a result of, like, our drug consumption over the years, right? And it's not just us, right? Our, our parents' generation, our grandparents' generation who have been consuming these substances. Uh, and so all of a sudden to just wipe our hands clean by saying, like, look, we've legalized marijuana, we've cut into cartel activity, Mexico will be fine. Like, that sort of leaves out half of the equation, right? Because we've had a hand and created all these problems, and now we're trying to put a Band-Aid effort on it and sort of wipe our conscience clean by saying, look, now we're smoking legal marijuana, mm-hmm. right? I was in Colombia for about four weeks a couple of years ago and mm-hmm. reading a lot about, before we went, about the drug trade there and what has happened and this kind of, uh, they call it the balloon effect, I guess, where mm-hmm. it's like you, you you put your foot down on one side of the balloon and the air just goes over to another side. So yeah. it's like between Colombia and Peru, there's, you know, it just depends on who's got more law enforcement pressure on them at the time. Historically, we've, we've caused those balloon effects, right? Both in terms of not limiting our consumption, but also in terms of how we drive intervention across uh, Latin America, right? And so we had, for a long time, when cocaine was coming up into the U.S., it would come in through Miami, right, through, through the Caribbean. And it was a fairly, like, you know, a chain that was really well controlled. You had producers in Colombia, transporters shipping it to the eastern seaboard, and then distribution networks throughout the U.S. And then in the late 1970s, early 80s, we put, you know, real pressure, right? The U.S. uh, said, you know, this is a problem. We need to stop this, right? And one of the ways they did that was that they cut off all the transit networks in through the Caribbean and the eastern seaboard, and that's what redirected all these drugs into Mexico, right? Because they had already been trafficking heroin and marijuana into the U.S. And here you have people that know what they're doing. Well, we just throw them another substance and move into the U.S., and that's not a big deal. And so that's how Mexico became involved in sort of this larger scale. Now, the other part about about the cocaine issue is that 
the coca plant is something very different to people in the Andes than what cocaine is to us as like Americans, you know, snorting to like dance all night or right. whatever it is you want to do on coke. You know, some people use it for enhancing sexual activity, whatever. But in the Andes, the coca leaf is something that's needed for dealing with altitude sickness. And uh, it's also an appetite suppressant, right? But they don't consume it in this sort of in this powder form that's been synthesized and gone through this chemical process to arrive at, at this substance that we know of as cocaine, right? They just chew the leaves or consume it as a tea, right? And so part of our, our drug intervention efforts was to eradicate coca plants like throughout the Andes. And from you know, a critical perspective, like that doesn't seem fair that just because we're consuming the substance in a certain way that we see as detrimental to be able to tell like people in the Andes like oh we're gonna get rid of this plant because it's causing all this trouble for us when you know it's synthesized into this powder and so just because we can't handle our shit means you can't have access to this even though you've had been using it as sort of a cultural uh, component of your livelihood for you know millennia now, right right so obviously the problem is that we just as consumers any we don't deal with the consequences. I think uh, apathy has been a real sort of integral part of why the drug war has been allowed to continue for so long. And that's just, I'd say that's part of it, right? I mean, drug consumers don't think about the substances they consume the same way they think about coffee, right? So you can have somebody go and, and you know, go whether it's to Starbucks or like your local coffee shop and be like, oh, I only want organic fair trade coffee, right? And, you know, that espresso and cocaine have pretty much the same effects on your brain, but later on, if you're going to go party and you don't want to have an espresso to stay up all night and you buy, you know, a dime of cocaine, like, you're not going to go and be like, oh, is this, you know, were any people killed or exposed to pesticides as a result of this uh, substance being brought from the Andes to my hands, right? So we, yeah, we don't have the same level of consciousness when it comes to consuming illicit substances. Now, the other side of it is that there's so much investment in fighting the drug war, right? So whether it's uh, the jobs created through uh, the prison industrial complex, right, and that's anything from like building prisons to funding any of these individuals that are working, whether in prisons or law enforcement officers, like it's creating jobs, right? There's tons of jobs being created as a result of the drug war. Contractors that are building drones to police the border, um, the technology that goes into surveilling different places, all that is part of like the money going into the drug war. And those people have a strong like lobbying presence to be able to convince lawmakers that this is the right thing to do. Now back to the sort of apathy that drug consumers have, there hasn't been a very strong political engagement with the drug war. Right. I mean, people might say that, right? So, like, Amendment 64 is an example of how we're politically engaged, right? But but is that as far as, like, we want to go just like, oh, look, we have legal marijuana in Colorado, and so we're fine. No, if you're serious about fighting the drug war, right, and, and correcting the injustices that have been caused by the drug war, then you shouldn't ever be sort of complicit with the situation, right? Because... So Amendment 64's push was also saying, like, look, we're going to have a lot less people going to prison as a result of the war on drugs. Now, call me cynical, but I don't think that's going to be a reality. I think, uh, if anything, it's going to be the same sort of amount of 
individuals being incarcerated for drug possession, right? But this time they have they're able to drive and direct drug imprisonment through what we now call the harder drugs, right? So now you don't have an excuse, right? So um, you mean there'll be harder, like more of a crackdown on the hard, on cocaine, yeah, heroin, I, meth, mm-hmm. because they don't have they're not meeting the numbers for marijuana. Yeah, and so and you and you saw it up and down I twenty five at the same time that we were pushing through trying to get support for Amendment T four right at the end of 2011, beginning of 2012, they did this big raid up and down the I-25 corridor in the middle of the night and nabbed all these um, cocaine dealers, right? You know, how, how can we be complicit with that taking place and people being in prison for trafficking that substance in our state at the same time that we're pushing for a more liberal drug policy on this other substance, right? You know, and... While some people might see it as like, oh, look, like marijuana, so, you know, it's a plant, it's all these things. It's natural. It's natural, right? Um, <laughs> I'd say go to your dispensary, ask them what kind of work goes into getting you your, you know, whether it's your Kush strain or whatever your desired flavor of the week is. There's a lot of intense, like, human ingenuity going into producing that substance. It's not something just growing, right, in your neighbor's backyard right? because they dropped some seeds, right? There's intense investment taking place in producing those substances. I, I always talk about Breaking Bad. Are you familiar with the show? Do you watch it? Yeah, I started to watch uh, Breaking Bad, and I watched probably, I want to say, at least most of the first season, uh-huh. and then started to have problems with it in terms of, right, here you have a white, middle-aged, middle-class drug trafficker who's down on his luck, and so it's positive in the sense that it, it shows a more nuanced sort of uh, representation of what we think of as a drug trafficker. Uh, and it's good in the sense that, that, you know, there are a lot of, like, white drug traffickers in America, right? But then the reception of it and the way people sort of adopted it uh, became really problematic for me because here you have uh, the ability to represent... And I think weeds is the same way, right? If you, if you see weeds, you have these white protagonists that become drug traffickers, not because of any sort of uh, pathological desire to engage in this behavior, but it's something that they're sort of forced into, right? And even when you come into witnessing characters that are not white in, that, in these sort of contexts, in these shows, they're often still represented in the same sort of archetypical fashion of like, you know, Mexicans and African-Americans are pathological drug dealers, right, that just engage in this behavior because they don't know any better, right? And so we don't have the same representations of drug dealing or drug trafficking life for people on the other side, right? Uh, and that's what I'm, in a lot of ways, trying to do, right? The, the people that engage in drug trafficking along the border aren't necessarily, right, engaged in these sort of pathological behaviors. And if they are pathological, it comes out of some sort of longer, deep-seated uh, push that has created these sort of environments, right, that creates these behaviors. The evolution of, of some of the more dangerous cartel activity mm-hmm. coming into, directly into communities. Mm-hmm. Is that, is there any kind of foundation for that fear that is, the news the other day is covering the, what they caught one of the, the head guys from the Setas or yeah. something. One of the most dangerous yeah, cartels, the, if not the most, right? Yeah, Los Setas were, a lot of the drug traffickers that I knew were already working with them. 
in the 1990s before they had even you know, arrived on like the media scene. Mexico, right, as part of this sort of relationship with the U.S. to try to fight drug trafficking, set up an elite anti-drug force, right, in Mexico. There was a group originally of about 40 specially trained individuals that were trained in counter-narcotics counter efforts. And they received training from, like, several institutions, like some people say the U.S. government, some people say they were trained at the School of the Americas. It's pretty nebulous, but that they did receive some sort of international training, right? Um, and that the U.S. had some hand in it. Point um, at being high, highly skilled. Yeah, highly Very skilled. Very Highly trained in, in military tactics, in um, surveillance techniques, and all sorts of technologies. And so Losetas, you know, starts to operate in, in the 1990s as a military force for the Mexican government, right, an anti-narcotics military force. But then the Gulf Cartel that works in the area where I did my research saw this as an opportunity. They said, here we have this group that I could essentially buy out, right? And so the, the head of the Gulf Cartel, Jose Cardenas Guillén, pretty much goes and recruits Los Cetas as his own private military, right? And so here, here you have a group training counter-narcotics now working for a drug trafficking organization. So all the intelligence that they're able to, to bring to the plate in terms of how counter-narcotic strategies work now is used as the intelligence to be able to get more drugs across the border. But they started to implement a lot of military tactics, a lot of the violence that we associate with sort of war into uh, the drug war in Mexico. And they really, in 2003, set up what becomes like the sort of escalation of paramilitarization of Mexican drug trafficking organizations, right? And so because they start to operate so heavily along the border, and start to be involved in all these confrontations with other groups. All these other drug trafficking organizations now see the need to establish their own SETA-like force. Right? And so the SETAs were the first and probably the most effective at using these types of military tactics, but they're not the only ones that spread into all drug trafficking organizations. And it's had significant effects for, for how we think about drug trafficking now as like a national security threat. They've expanded beyond drug trafficking, so they're involved in extortion and kidnapping. You know a few people that have been kidnapped and a lot of business owners that have been extorted by Lucetas. They've engaged in human trafficking, responsible for the deaths of a lot of uh, Central American immigrants in Mexico. And so they're like the sort of Walmart of organized crime, like they do everything, right? Now, the interesting thing about it is that they've been involved in two cases of violence against individuals that, to me, show that they're trying to think about themselves and their relationship to the U.S. in like a much more tactical way. The first was a case in at Falcon Lake where actually an individual from Denver... I remember, kind of remember the story. Yeah, so this, uh, this married couple from... They're originally from just just outside. It's like Denver a, area. a suburb or something. Yeah, but he worked he worked in Mexico as um, some sort of advisor, some business advisor, and he and his wife were out at a, a lake known for smuggling activity. This individual was shot and killed, right? And it brought national attention at the time. To here you have this, you know, white individual minding their own business, right? Just engaging in sort of recreational activity, and they're killed by 
these drug trafficking operatives. And it was later found out that these were Setas operatives. And when the people in charge found out that these idiots had done that and brought attention to themselves, they pretty much let everybody know, like, we took care of it. Like, these guys are dead. Like, because they did something stupid that they weren't supposed to do. And so, so the Setas already see that there, there are certain people that they don't want to mess with because it might bring too much attention to them. And I think this is true of, of how the drug war is being waged. There are certain people that are viewed as expendable that won't bring attention, right? Think about like the 60,000 people that have died in Mexico. And then you have this one individual, right, shot and killed that brings all this media attention, right? And they didn't want that, right? And so they've tried to be more calculating about like, yeah, Mexican people are disposable, right? But they're not trying to come into like, you know, Fort Collins or Boulder and like just start offing people because they got bought, right? Despite what Rush Limbaugh, Glenn Beck, any of these people, like right wing media folks might want you to think, they're not in the they're not in the business of like just offing, you know, middle class white folk in America. So going back to where you did your research, where you grew up, your home. Mm-hmm. What kinds of things are moving north right now, I guess? Mm-hmm. And where are, from your perspective of what they're doing in your community, what should, be, what should we start getting ready for? Mm-hmm. I mean, especially for the Latino community, this has turned into probably the biggest problem for us, right? Because as the sort of the sort of immigration issue and the drug war issue start to intersect along the border, you start to see really the criminalization and villainization of Latinos as a result of that, right? And so if you think about who are the targets of the drug war, right? It used to be, and still is to a significant extent, African Americans. But increasingly in the last decade to decade and a half, you've seen that shift towards really criminalizing Latinos in all of Latin America, really. And so you've seen really the villainization of Latinos across the border, right? Latinos now become subject to inspection all along the border. And this is something that's very troubling, especially in the wake of like recent talks about drones, policing, right, areas of the U.S., right? Like people on the border, Latinos, have been uh, subject to this sort of invasion of their lives in the interest of national security, right? And we never really had a problem with it. Like, we Americans not living along the border, we never had a problem with that extent of surveillance, right, of people being subject to that type of surveillance. But now that it's hitting us where we live, it's becoming an issue, right? But people aren't still, even though they're fighting for, like, no drones, you know, in our, in our backyards, right, along the border, well, I'm not sure whether we should completely do away with that, right? And so I think especially along, along the border, like in the community that I worked, in my community, you know, kids are just, they're just like used to like being under surveillance. And to me, that's really problematic to, to know, to grow up. I have a younger brother. He's a teenager, right? He gets stopped by the Border Patrol all the time, like just walking through, trying to go to the border to go fishing, right? That to me be, has become really problematic, right? That you have these these young people growing up and internalizing that view that they should be subject to these types of surveillance, uh, but also adopting 
and becoming desensitized to the violence that they're exposed to on a daily basis as a result of the drug war. I was witness to a lot of it growing up, and I think the kids growing up now are even, uh, you know, dealing with this to a greater extent than I ever did. And it, it sort of expresses itself in, in various ways, like kids joking about, like, things like beheadings, right? Uh, things like, you know, death, right? Kidnappings, all these things. Like, that is just uh, a part of their daily existence, right? And something that they're trying to cope with. So people have argued that, like, Mexico and the U.S.-Mexico border is, like, in a constant state of, like, uh, post-traumatic stress, right, because of the drug war. And then the other side of it is that if you talk about who's doing all the policing and surveillance, they're hiring Latinos to do all of that, right? And so, especially, like, the community where I come from, you have the kids that were able to make it and go to college coming back to their community because, like I said earlier, like, it's, it's unique from any other place in the world, this sort of border zone. A lot of people are only able to function in that environment, and so they go back there, but they have this education, they want a good paying job, they end up in the Border Patrol or local police enforcement, and so now they're policing their own community, right? Uh, and so there's all these uh, tensions taking place in the community, uh, and I think that's very similar to what's taking place here. I think about like how... Latinos uh, have become criminalized throughout the U.S. and this animosity towards Latinos, right? And you think about, especially right now in like the wake of things like the Trayvon Martin case, right? Things like the killing at the Fruitvale Station in San Francisco, where you have these African-American young people being villainized and criminalized. You're seeing the same thing taking place with Latinos, right? And not just like Latino kids, but like guys working at the Home Depot, right? day laborers. Everyone becomes a subject of surveillance and uh, potential criminality, right? Right. Suspects of, of mm-hmm. and always something to do with the drug trade. Yeah. yeah. You could have a white cocaine dealer stand, standing next to right somebody who's dressed in like J. Crew, white male standing right next to a poor Mexican kid, right? And you're not going to take a second to think that, oh, this, you know, upstanding white preppy individual is the one doing the drug dealing, right? Mm-hmm. Because that doesn't fit in our sort of image of what, who the villain is, mm-hmm. right? And I think that's that's true here. Like, we, we, we don't necessarily think of the consumers as the villains, right? We think of the producers and the dealers as the villains, right? And the, it's their fault that we're using drugs yeah. because they keep coming in with it so we're not how are we supposed to have the will the willpower to turn them down yeah so if anything the consumers are the ones that have to seek out the supplier mm-hmm. right you talk about music being something that's really important in um, South Texas in your community mm-hmm. in particular uh, I think you know programs like that would be really effective at getting students involved in some sort of cultural activity an activity that gives them sort of self-worth and allows them to see what is possible outside of illicit trade. It's engaging a different incentive for people. It's not necessarily a monetary incentive. Uh-huh. I mean, some of it's got to be ego, right? But yeah. Well, and I think that's part of what's attractive from like illicit trade, right? It's like you're able to gain some sort of self worth from it, right? You see, you see yourself as having purpose, and you see people giving you, you, yeah, needing you, giving you some sort of respect, and so you gain this self worth. Right, 
And I think that's something that a lot of young people are cut off from. Young people in urban settings, right? I mean, you know, you see like, you know, like the sort of commercials where like upper middle class families are like busing their kids around from like activity to activity to activity and they're finding all these things to engage in that give them some sort of um, purpose and uh, allow for them to build character traits that, that will be necessary and useful for them in their future, right? Whatever direction they seek to pursue. But a lot of those avenues are cut off for poor kids, right? For kids that, live in, that are living at the margins, right? And when illicit trade comes out as like an opportunity, like here you have somebody that's A, incentivizing it by, you know, through monetary means, but also through the fact that oh, look, I get to be somebody important and valuable in some way, right? Yeah, you're like a um, mini-celebrity. Mm-hmm. Probably what even draws like a lot of people to like these narratives about like the drug trade. Like Even why are the, the Sopranos and Breaking Bad two of the biggest stories on television that like the general public is attracted to, right? Because here you have these people that are you know, seen as powerful and having these qualities that yeah, they have these bad qualities, but look at how great they are as individuals in terms of their... Right, it's all—it's this, like, moral dilemma, like, what necessarily is, mm-hmm. is bad about this, or yeah. is this really a bad thing, but Walter White doesn't exist. Uh-huh. It's great television, <laughs> but we can't, we can't face up to the reality that is present around those same issues, right? right? Well, in some ways, I think, I mean, even The Wire couldn't do that. Yeah, and, that, and The Wire is something that people point to a lot, which I find also problematic from like critical perspective right and it's um you know it, it they do these great jobs of like trying to make things more nuanced right but they also you know fail in right in certain right? and this, this is a, for me this is a problem with television television doesn't necessarily educate if anything it reproduces the same sort of ideas and beliefs that you already have ingrained in you right so okay. if you see a show where African Americans are behaving as drug dealers and this and that, right? You're like, oh yeah, that's exactly what I think of when I think of African Americans in you know the ghettos of Baltimore, right? That's exactly like, like I have like a viewpoint into it, right? But you have a dramatized viewpoint into their daily life, and it isn't necessarily like a critical view into like what do we do about that? How do we move forward? You know, what's our role in that? Um, so for me, those are the things that become problematic about these popular depictions of these drug narratives, right? Is that they just reinforce our ideas. They don't necessarily educate us. I haven't even watched the trailer for it, mm-hmm. but it's um, called The Bridge. Yeah. Have you heard of this one? Yeah, I've seen it. Is there anything there that you see any kind of potential for, even just opening a conversation, I guess? Yeah, I, I you know, I think... Um, the first episode was really well done, the pilot. I think, um, and I talked to a lot of my friends from the border that watched it. So it's about, is it supposed to be about life on the border? Or is it supposed to be about life inside of, an, of a border patrol or something like that? No, so, it's, so the premise is here you have, and it's, it's interesting because it's, it's basically like a remake of a Swedish show. Mm-hmm. Uh, so it's interesting how these crime dramas are being adapted from like these, like the killing is the same way. It's a Swedish, originally Swedish uh, crime drama that was adapted uh, for a U.S. market, right? Mm-hmm. And so it's interesting because it's a crime drama, but it's set on 
the impossible at his border. And I don't know if I'm going to ruin it for you. No, no. Okay. Ruin it for me, please. So it starts off with a body being discovered right on the U.S.-Mexico border. And when I say that, it means on the bridge at the dividing line, where if you've ever been on an international bridge, there's a line yeah. at the center of the bridge that says, this side is the U.S. and this side is Mexico, right? And so they discover a body at the bridge right at that line. And the woman, interestingly enough, is cut in half. And half of her is on the U.S. side and half of her is on the Mexican side. The kicker is that half of the body is a white uh, anti-immigrant judge from El Paso, and the other half is a young female Mexican victim, supposedly one of these women of whites, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and so that's the premise, right, trying to solve this crime where it's coming from. Uh, and so you have two detectives working together, a Mexican detective who's in the first episode is meant to be shown as like upstanding, not sort of subject to the corruption that we think of when we think of Mexican police forces and then a white female detective on the U.S. side. And so it's an interesting sort of case to think about where it goes. For me personally, being from the border, I think they did a really good job of showing what border life is like, like people going back and forth, the interconnection between people on both sides of the border, and then the language usage. Mm -hmm. I think that's the first time on network television that I've ever seen people talk the way I grew up talking on television. And so in that sense, it's... It was a really good first episode. Like, where it goes from there, I'm not entirely sure. And part of the reason why I like it as opposed to other ones so far, like, I've been trashing all these other ones, but <laughs> part of it is really just, this is the first time, I think, for a lot of us from the border that we've able been able to see ourselves on, on television. television in a way that isn't immediately... Negative. Yeah, negative. Santiago and I talked for a good two hours, but knowing that the diatribe will host plenty of future discussions on drug culture and policy, especially as Denver City officials continue to address Amendment 64, we're going to sign off for now. Our theme music is by TJ Miller from his extended play EP, and our web hosting is provided by bluechannel.com. For more information about Denver Diatribe or any of our guests, check out our website, denverdiatribe.com or search for Denver Diatribe on Twitter or Facebook. We're going out with the song Go Down Sunshine from Pretty Lights featuring Denver's C1 of the food chain. I'm Vanessa Martinez. On behalf of our guest, Santiago Guerra, thanks for listening.